0: Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we are going to be discussing Talk to Me. It's a sweet little independent horror movie by Danny Philippou and Bill Hinsman based on an idea by Daley Pearson. So I want to start as we look at Talk to Me. I want to start... By talking about the first page of your script, I want to start by talking about the first 10 pages of your script. I want to start by talking about the first image of your script, right? Now, if you have not seen Talk to Me yet, I won't spoil anything beyond the first 10 minutes. As we get to part two, we're going to start to get deeper into the film, and I'll give you a warning then if you want to stop until you've watched the film, because there will be spoilers in part two of the podcast. Let's talk about the commercial stuff first before we get to the deep spiritual stuff, right? On a purely commercial level, producers don't like to read. Agents don't like to read. Now, I'm not talking about their personalities, right? There are some agents, there are some producers who love reading. But every moment that a producer, manager, agent spends reading is a moment that they are not spending selling. Reading is something that they have to do but it's not something that they want to do because it's not where they make their big money. It's not where they make their stats. It's not where they feel their biggest sense of accomplishment. They feel the accomplishment when they sell something. So you have a business reason why producers are resistant to reading, why managers, why agents are resistant to reading. There's also just a physical reason that they're resistant to reading, which is they have more submissions than they could read in a lifetime every single week. And not just from new writers. I'm talking about scripts from writers with agents and managers who are feeding them scripts, right? You've got to read this, right? They have more coming at them than they could ever read. Which means that most likely your script's not even getting read by a producer. Most likely your script is actually getting read by an assistant, by a junior level development executive, or even more likely than that, because those people also have more scripts than they can read and more calls than they can handle and more networking than any human being could possibly do, it's probably getting read by a coverage reader. And what is a coverage reader? A coverage reader is sometimes a brilliant writer who in the future will go on to be a great writer. A coverage reader is sometimes a terrible writer who will not end up going on to be a writer. A coverage reader is sometimes an intern, right? But regardless... A coverage reader is somebody who is reading scripts for $50 or less per script, most likely. So just think about that for a moment. Think about how long it would take you just to read a script, write a good log line, a helpful summary, a, an incisive commentary, and you realize that if they were really fully doing their job for every single script, they would be making like 30 cents an hour. Woefully underpaid, which means that coverage readers cannot fully read every script, nor do they want to, because most of the scripts coming at them, again, not scripts by amateur writers, not scripts by emerging writers, scripts by represented professional writers, most scripts coming at them are terrible, right? Coverage readers are reading terrible material all the time which means that there's a resistance in them. Even if they're a lit major who loves reading, there's resistance in them. They've got this stack. They've got to get through so many scripts just to pay the rent. They actually do want to find that diamond in the rough. Of course they do. They want to prove to whoever they're working for, I've got the eye, I've got the talent, I can pick good material because nobody wants to stay a coverage reader working for pennies on the hour, right? It's a route into the industry. Netflix has actually got data that shows that an audience is making a decision whether they're going to watch your show or your movie, or whether they're going to click to the next thing in 10 seconds. Think about that 10 seconds. So for all these reasons, coverage readers, producers, managers, agents, none of them read, what they actually do is skim. And your job as a writer is really, really simple. Your job as a writer is to go, hey, pay attention. This isn't going to suck. In fact, you are going to be blown away by what you are about to read. If you look at the first image of Talk to Me, we are at this party and we are watching this kid looking for his brother and he is weaving through this crowd and we're building anticipation and he comes to a closed door and he breaks through the door. And we're already in horror and we're going, Oh my God, what's in there. And we see an image of the back of his brother and it is covered with blood and scars, right? It looks like he's been whipped or cut or something. And he covers his brother up. And his brother is making some kind of catatonic mumbles about mom who's dead. And he leads him out into the crowd. And everyone is taking pictures on their iPhones, right? No one is feeling any empathy. They're only watching the spectacle. And his loving brother, Cole, tries to stop these people, right? Stop. Turn off your phones. What are you doing, right? He tries to do the right thing. And when he turns around, his brother stabs him in the chest and then stabs himself right through the forehead. This is the first image, the first scene, the first little sequence, right? This is the introduction to the world of Let Me In. And I want you to see how much work that little scene is doing. That little scene is saying, Hey, first, here's the genre. Here's what you're watching. Either you are into this or you are not. Number two, that scene is starting with a character with a strong want and a strong obstacle. Number three, it's created the emotional landscape of this piece. Number four, It is surprising us, even as it plays with common horror tropes, right? The party, the thing that we don't want to see, right? Don't go in the room, right? All that kind of stuff. It's surprising us with a little twist on that. It's basically saying, look, this is a horror movie. This is a horrifying horror movie that's going to leave you breathless. And it's going to come at you a little bit different than you expect." I promise you on the very first page. So I want you to think just from a pure commercial level, I want you to think, are you saying to the audience, this is what it is? Or are you wasting your time on your first page? Are you going, let me set this up. Let me establish this. Let me make this clear. Because if you're doing that, I promise you, no one's going to read page two. They're going to skim page two if they have to. And so your job, and I teach this in my Write Your Screenplay class, if you want to really understand it, right? Isolating visual moment of action. Your job is to hypnotize your reader. You've got basically 10 pages to take a reader who is jaded and transform them and shift them. Cool. This is going to be good. No, it's going to be better. No, it's going to be better. No, holy crap. Look at what's happening. The way that talk to me builds this We go from this super scary opening to an image of Mia, the main character, and she is scratching at her nail polish. We're going to talk more about all the things that they build from that image as we continue, right? But just starting with that image, and sometimes you don't even know what it is. In fact, Daniel Philippo has talked about the idea that When he's writing, he doesn't actually use an outline. He just writes scenes that he thinks are cool, and then he starts to riff on this. And the Philippos are such a great example, right? Because uh, they actually started as YouTube makers, rack-a-rack, right? They were making YouTube videos, making content. And they're just such a great example of, right? If you love doing something, well, go do it, right? Go do it and do it and do it and do it. And then they've made this little tiny, I think it was a 4 or $5 million horror movie that's already grossed over $54 million. Right? This is their first feature length screenplay that's produced, right? And sometimes that doesn't begin with having that all figured out. Sometimes that just begins with a fingernail. I see this. So, we're going to see the image of Mia with her fingernails. And we're going to go from there to a cemetery. And we're going to realize that Mia's lost her mom. We're going to realize that whoever's talking to her, it's an image we barely see from off screen. It's almost like a ghost. We're going to realize that there's something wrong between them. She doesn't want to be talking to this person, right? So we're in this little emotional drama that is given genre weight by the opening, right? The opening says, you're in a horror movie. Okay. Now we're in a personal drama. We're seeing a girl who's not okay. Then we're going to cut to Riley, right? This young kid talking about cigarettes with his friend who's kind of, kind of dabbling in like pushing the edges a little. The truth is they're both good kids. They're just, he's dabbling. He's selling cigarettes, right? Um, And Riley doesn't even want to smoke one, right? This is where he's starting, right? In that innocent, beautiful, childlike place. And he wants his sister to pick him up. And instead, who shows up to pick him up is Mia. And we realize that Mia and Riley have this awesome connection, right? There's this beautiful scene where they are just rocking it out as they drive. But it's been a minute or two, so we need another horror element. And that horror element, is the car comes to a stop. And you can see this is just a yes and to that moment that we had at the very opening scene, right? That door, right? We're sitting in the car. We know she stopped. She saw something. We don't know what it is. And we are sitting in the car and we are going, don't get out. Don't get out. Don't get out. Don't get out. But of course, she gets out, right? Because we are in a horror movie. And they're on the road, because this is an Australian movie. They're on the road is a dying kangaroo. It's, it's roadkill. It is dying. It is screaming in pain, in agony. And Riley says to Mia, put it out of its misery. And Mia goes to back the car over, but she cannot do it. Instead, she leaves it suffering. She tells Riley, another car will come. And we linger on this kangaroo, and we know we're in a horror movie, so we're telling ourselves all kinds of stories, right? Is this kangaroo going to be possessed? Is right? We're waiting for the trope, but it doesn't happen. We'll talk about later how this image is actually predictive, this is the image out of which the climax of the piece is gonna grow, right? And the writer might not even know yet that this is the image from which the climax is gonna grow. It's just a horror image that they're playing with in some way. We're gonna follow them home and we're gonna realize that Mia has become part of a white family. We don't know exactly why, but we're starting to think that some things are wrong at home. Things must be wrong. Somehow this family has kind of taken her in. Her best friend, Jade, Jade's little brother, Riley, that she is like a part of their family. Even their mother has a relationship with her, right? So we're starting to realize this character has problems, right? We don't know exactly what the problems are, but we're watching her process this roadkill that she left on the road the choice not to put it out of her misery. She's processing that with Jada. So we're watching this structure build, right? This little character-driven structure that's built against this, these horror tropes, right? And this is one of the things that you see in great genre movies, whether it's horror or action or rom-com or whatever that genre is, or thriller or noir, right? No matter what that genre is, when you're working a strong genre, there's almost always a drama underneath it. Even a slapstick comedy, there's usually a drama underneath it. If it's a really strong movie, there's something that we can connect to. Cause the truth is none of us hopefully are possessed by any kinds of demons, right? We don't have creepy hands reaching out to us, right? These things don't happen in our real world, right? So they're only powerful if we're not in like be silly horror movie territory, if we're going to actually be an emotional elevated horror, right? They're only powerful if they speak to something that's real to us, that's true to us, that actually affects us that connects to our lives. And in this case, we don't know everything that's coming yet, right? We don't know that the kangaroo is a symbol. We don't know what's happened to Mia's mom. We don't know why she's estranged from her father. We don't know any of that thing, those things. But we know that this is a story about a girl who is clinging on to the only family that she's got. By the time we get about 10 minutes into this movie, we're going to be locked into the hook. And the hook is really simple. A bunch of kids have got this hand right? It's some kind of embalmed plaster hand. It's got writing all over it. It's super creepy, right? It's a standard horror genre element, right? There needs to be some kind of induction, right? There's some kind of reason, right? Even how, where the hand comes from. Well, it turns out it's connected to Cole, that guy from the beginning of the movie, but how and why and all that stuff, we don't even deal with it because the truth is we don't really care. We barely deal with where the hand comes from just enough to justify it, right? It's just there as a convenience. But we got this creepy object, right? A horror trope, just what's your take on it? But what happened, and we we have another horror trope, right? Which is that you have to invite in the horror, right? That you have to make a choice that brings the horror in. So we're kind of in this thematic world, right? Where we're going, is the right thing to do to let the roadkill live and suffer? Is the right thing to do to put the roadkill out of its misery? Right, what is actually the ethical thing? What is actually right? Right, and it's gonna turn out that this is the primal question that that Mia, the main character, is actually dealing with as she wrestles with her mother's death, right? We're gonna find that out as we continue. Right, and now we're watching these kids do this thing that's freaking terrifying. You take the hand. And you say, talk to me. And a spirit appears and you're going to want to pull away, but no, you don't. Instead you say, I let you in. And when you say, I let you in, the demon will occupy you. And of course it cannot occupy you for more than 90 seconds. And by the time we're about 10 minutes into this movie, Mia will have chosen not only to take the hand and then something appears and she pulls away. She will not only have chosen to take the hand, she will also have chosen to take it again after seeing the horrifying thing and to invite the monster into her. Now, part of these are tropes. Part of these are tropes. You got the candle. It could have been a Ouija board, right? It could have been the psychic machine in Big, <laughs> it's slightly different genre, but it's the same idea. Something that induces the magic. It could have been inviting Dracula into your house, right? It's the same thing. You want the story to happen by the characters. This is just a little twist. So we're about 10 minutes into this movie, and we've taken our character on this huge journey. You can also see that the entire thematic world of the piece has been set up at this point. Because what's going to happen is another yes and to that first image. And when I say yes and, I'm talking about improv terms, right? I'm saying, if this is true, what else is true? Um, A a little metaphor that I can give you for yes and is if you're playing a game of tennis and someone hits the ball to you, you don't want to just hit another ball back. That's not the game, right? It just starts to feel weird and disconnected. But this is what a lot of writers do. They go, oh, here's a great idea, and here's another idea. Instead, what you want to do is you want to let that first ball, whether it's a great ball or a crappy ball or whatever kind of ball it is, you want to let it hit your tennis racket, and you want to feel that shiver up your arm. And then as you return, you want to let, allow that shiver, that feeling of the ball hitting your racket to inform what happens? So you're going, yes, I accept whatever I created, whether it was brilliant, whether it was cliche, whatever it was, I accept it. And now I'm going to build on it and add to it. If this is true, what else is true? This is the way it works on the commercial level. Those first 10 pages, they set the hook and you can see how the hook is set. If you're not into terrifying horror movies, by page 10 of this movie, you are running out of that theater. But if you are into terrifying horror movies that have a dramatic personal component that are saying something about life and society and the world that we can relate to, but that are filled with horror and terrifying images and nightmares, well, you're going, whoa, this is for me. And I get what it is. And I also get how it's slightly different. I've got a character who's on a journey. I'm getting who she is. I'm connected to her. I care about her. I know why she's making her choices even though she's making choices. I'm going, no, 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 don't do it because we're in a horror movie. I've got horror elements dropped in to keep me feeling the genre, even as all this beautiful character-driven work gets built. That's what's happening on the commercial level. But even more important than the commercial level is the thematic level, the writing level, what I call the me draft, right? Because working so hard on your first 10 pages allows you to truly see, feel, hear everything with specificity. You see, if you don't do this work, if you don't really force, what's my first image of the character? How is it cool? What's the first image of Mia? What's the first image of Riley? What's the first image of the film? How does this work? How do these things connect, right? How is it different? How is it connected? How is it the same as, how is it doing the genre but doing a twist on it? If you're not doing those things, well, you're not seeing it. You're not feeling it. You're not hearing it. And, and what, what often happens is we as writers, right, we're so eager to get to the end that we're like, I don't want to slow down and figure out all this stuff. I'll figure that out later. I want to get to my idea. But then you get to your idea and you've built on a cliche, weak, uninteresting foundation you got characters who are not characters, right? you got drama that's not drama. You've got images that are not images because we've seen them before because they're tropes because you've rushed through them just trying to set the hook. Whereas if you slow down at the beginning, it will speed you up because as we're going to see in part two of this podcast, everything grows out of those first images, not just for the audience but for you because you're going to find when you really force yourself to slow down and see, feel, and hear everything with specificity, to really know your characters and find your characters, to find those genre elements and give them a twist, once you really start to do that, you're going to learn that everything builds from there. Your theme, your structure, your characters, their journey, all builds from those early building blocks. And you're going to learn that slowing down will actually help you speed up as you continue. By the way, that doesn't mean you rewrite your first 10 pages forever because sometimes you have to write scenes out in the future to then work backwards. You go, oh, I'm not going to give you those scenes yet, but when we get to part two, we'll talk about it. Oh, I see this in the future, therefore I want to start with that. Actually, you can plug your ears for a second because I am going to give you one thing. There's a horrifying image later in the film where Mia looks at her hands and she's in a kind of fugue dream state. It's not clear what's real. And she looks at her hands and those nails are like worn down. They look like they've been like through a meat grinder, the tips of her fingers. And you can see that this is a yes and to those fingernails at the beginning that she's scratching at in anxious anticipation of having to go to her mom's grave. But there's no telling from a structural perspective, which image came first, right? It might've been the haunting, terrifying image that the writer woke up from a nightmare going, "Ah!" right? It might've been that. And then he said, Oh, if this is true, What else is true? Well, maybe we start with just the very beginning of that, the small version of that, or it might've been the little tiny version of just picking at the fingernails that led to the horrifying version of the fingers. And then as we get later in the movie, we're actually going to learn what those fingers are, right? Just like we're going to learn in one of the early scenes, Mia confides to her friend that she has this dream, this recurring nightmare where she has no reflection, it's like she's not there. Well, later, we're going to find out what that means. But from a writing perspective, we don't actually know. Did it start with the image of her looking at a mirror and seeing no reflection? Which, by the way, is just a vampire trope with a little twist here. Or did it start with the dream and then manifest in what it means later, right? So sometimes you have to go to the future to find the past and sometimes you have to look at the past to figure out the future but one way or another you've got to write those early scenes with specificity you got to find a way to find the specificity or nothing can grow because look at what's actually built here at the beginning of Talk to Me what's actually built here is a whole thematic world right because ultimately what we're going to discover in this movie is that this is a movie about suicide but it's not just a movie about suicide it's a movie about drug addiction but it's not just a movie about drug addiction it's a movie about being alone in a world where people are watching but not caring but it's not just a movie about being alone in a world where people are watching and not caring. It's also a movie about how hard it is for to care and try to welcome that person into your family. Right. This is a movie about connection and disconnection and what happens when we just don't talk to each other, when we don't let each other in. This is already built. Because Mia... Mia has a central problem. Her central problem is, and we're going to start to get into a little bit of spoilers, her central problem is her mother has committed suicide. And what we're going to learn later, there's this really beautiful scene. Her dad, she's estranged from her dad, we're going to find out. It's because her dad has not been honest with her. She knows he's hiding something. And he's told her this lie that she wants to believe, which is that her mother would never have killed herself on purpose, right? That those pills that her mother took, they were an accident. It wasn't on purpose. She would never purposely hurt you. That's what he said. But later, right, if this is true, what else is true, right? Later, there's going to be a running beat. Dad's. she's going to confront dad. You didn't tell me the truth and he's going to fail to tell her the truth. And then there's going to be a running beat of her phone ringing and her ignoring it. She doesn't want to deal with dad. And then dad's going to finally tell her the truth that she doesn't want to hear. And he's going to read this beautiful letter that her mother wrote right before her suicide. And that letter is going to say, maybe you're going to find peace. I'm finally feeling hope because it's over. Maybe you're going to feel peace knowing that I was let out of my misery, right? Knowing that I'm not suffering anymore. And you can see this is the central question, right? All the way back to that kangaroo. This is a central question of what is this peace really about? It's really about do you put yourself out of your misery? Is that where hope is? Or do you somehow find a way out of it to get out of your own demons, right? That's what this story is about, right? And later on in the movie, and I'm not going to ruin it for you, but the big twist, of course, is going to be when Riley takes the hand. The kid who didn't want the cigarette. is going to take the hand. And we're going to start to realize, oh, I get what this is. This is drugs, right? This is drug addiction. It starts as a party. It starts as a fun thing and it feels great. And this is so important, right? Mia's reaction after she is possessed and we watch the horror of her possession, but her reaction, when people ask how it was, she doesn't go, it was terrible. She goes, it felt great, right? And this is what it's about, right? This thing that starts as a way of feeling great, of being a party that drags you down, right? That is so obviously horrible, right? But that we start to want more and more and more and more of, right? Until the hand is not even necessary, right? Until we are in a fugue, until reality is no longer clear and the thing that we think is saving us is actually destroying us. The thing that we think is allowing us to have connection is actually cutting us off from the people who really love us, right? The thing that we think is saving us is actually destroying us, right? That is what this piece is about. And it's about a main character who's got to make a decision. Does she believe mom or does she believe dad? Which is real. Did mom never want to hurt her? Is mom still out there fighting for her, trying to protect her? Does she just listen to that voice? Should she have put the kangaroo out of its misery? Is that the way to end the horror? Or is there another way out? That is the primal question. Is it about escape? And if you've seen the movie, you know how Mia's journey is going to end up reflecting that, right? Is it about escape? Escaping the horror? Is that where hope lies? Does it only lie in death? Or is it about somehow moving through it? That is going to be her journey. So the first 10 pages of your film are working in three different, hugely valuable ways. Number one, they are working to help you connect, not to what you think the movie is, but to what the movie really is. Not the cliches in your head and the cool ideas and the cool twists and turns. No, the... Things that you didn't even know yet, that you only start to discover when you go to write the first scene with Riley and you're like, what's he doing? Well, it better be something cool. Oh, maybe his friend is selling cigarettes and they're like so young, right? Drugs are barely even in their minds yet. And we're going to meet this kid who doesn't want to smoke a cigarette and his friend who's like, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to smoke it if I want, right? Maybe we're going to meet them there. And then later you go, oh my God, I'm writing a movie about addiction. Of course, it makes sense. Mia's mom died of a pill overdose, and then you realize, oh, even though I'm in a horror trope of the kids doing it's candy man, candy man, candy man, candy man, right? It's the same thing, the don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, even though I'm in that trope, my trope ain't about candy man, candy man, candy man. My trope is about, oh my God, this feels good. This is a party this is fun, this is freedom, this is escape, and then the escape starts to destroy you. So, what's it about? It's going to show you. Number two, it's going to show you the beginning part of your structure for your character's journey, right? Every character begins with whatever their first image is, whatever they're doing, that announcement, oh, here I am, right? That is the beginning point of your character's journey and everything you build is going to build from there so if you don't have a strong beginning well it's impossible to understand the value of anything else it's impossible to understand the value of Riley going please let me touch the hand if you don't know at the beginning they didn't he didn't even want a cigarette right so it it gives you the first structural beat of your character's journey, which you can then, yes, and, right? It gives you images that you can then, yes, and. So it gives you the foundations of your structure. And then the third thing it does is commercially, it goes, hey, pay attention. This is what it's about. This is the genre. This is what's going on. This is my twist. Ain't this cool? Whoa, it's cooler than that. Yeah, you're going to freaking buy this. That is what your first 10 pages are doing. So stay tuned for part two, when we're going to start to talk more about the structure of talk to me. We're going to start to talk about how to build structure thematically. And uh, there are going to be a ton of spoilers, so watch the movie in between now and then. And if this podcast is helping your writing and you want to learn more about how to build screenplays organically, then come check out my school. We have fabulous foundation classes that will teach you seven-act structure and how to build the engine of a TV show. We've got for more advanced writers, we have my master class, which is the equivalent of a grad school education, but it will only take you one Sunday a month, and it will leave you with zero debt. And our ProTech Mentorship Program that will pair you one-on-one with a professional writer who will read every page you write for a tiny fraction of the cost of grad school. You can meet with them weekly, bi-weekly, whatever works best for you. It's an incredible program. Uh, and again, it's built to be affordable to allow you to become a professional writer with no debt, without leaving your job and to build yourself over time.